Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. It's going to be another exciting and awesome week of conversations on the story box. And today is one of those conversations that is both very, very interesting and it is a lot of fun as well. The question that I have for you before we dive into who our guest is today is how do you think high achievers really set themselves up to win? Do you think that motivation really exists or is it just this myth? It's comforting to imagine that superstars in their fields were just born better equipped than the rest of us, right? When a coworker loses 20 pounds or a friend runs a marathon while completing a huge project at work, we assume they might have more grit, more willpower or more innate talent and above all, more motivation to see their goals through. But that's not exactly or really true, according to my guest today, Jeff Hayden, who is a popular Inc.com columnist and one of LinkedIn's most influential people. He proves that motivation, as we know it, is just a myth. Motivation isn't a special source that we require at the beginning of a major change. In fact, motivation is a result of process, not a cause, and I totally agree with that fact. Understanding this will change the way you approach any obstacle or big goal. Jeff shows us how to reframe our thinking about the relationship of motivation to success, and we do talk about 
that during our conversation uh, today for you guys. I mean, success is one of those things, isn't it? Like if you don't have uh, a great deal of motivation towards achieving certain things and you won't be successful and, and the whole uh, an, an analogy goes, right? Uh, but Jeff takes the mystery out of accomplishment, proving that success isn't about spiritual awakening or a lightning bolt of inspiration as our former guest, uh, Tony Robbins and adherents of the secret believe, but instead about clear and repetitive processes. And um, I love the the notion of being able to repeat something as much as you possibly can in order to get better at it. Or I guess, as some of my other guests have, have proven, the more you practice something, the more you better understand it, the better you get at it, and the more you can actually truly master it. So this conversation, I hope, is going to help many, many of you. It is quite wide ranging. Jeff and I don't talk too much on his book, The Motivation Myth. We talk more about the topics that are found within his book, along with so many other great golden nuggets of wisdom. And it's just an all around fun and yeah, Jeff is a funny guy too, by the way. So I think you guys are going to love uh, some of the stories that he has for you guys uh, today. But if you do get something from it, share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one too. Also, my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is now available for pre-order. Link will be in the show notes below too. Also help support Jeff and the amazing work that he's doing. You can connect with him on LinkedIn and his, his uh, articles and, and work over there is, is pretty fascinating too. Or you can get a copy of his book. It's called The Motivation Myth. Link will be in the show notes below for you guys as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Jeff Hayden. Thank you, sir. It is, it is absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. Now, this is a question you posed to me when you sent an email back to say yes to coming on my show. Swans or giants? <laughs> uh, all right. So swans, just because, wow, do you really want the story? Yes, please. I was okay, curious. So that's, right. Like, this no is, this this. Is a, that's right. This is a story podcast. Cool. Um, so, wow, you're going to take me way back and it's going to make me seem really old. But in 1985... Long before you were born, I'm sure. Um, ESPN was still a new network here, and they had to fill up their hours with something. And so they started showing Australian rules football. So a friend and I were getting ready to go to work. We worked second shift. It was on in the afternoon. We turned it on and thought, what the heck is this? You know, because we had no concept. This is pre-internet, pre-everything. And so we had no idea what it was. We're trying to figure out the rules, which it didn't seem to be any. Um, Couldn't figure out the scoring. And so we thought, okay, next week, since they have another game, we're going to check it out. So we watch again. And I thought, this is kind of cool. I wish I had a way to find more out about it. And this is back when the only way you had to do that really was a library. And my local library had nothing on Australian rules football. So I, this sounds bad, but when I went to work, I decided I didn't want to spend my own overseas long distance money. So when I went to work, I did it at work. And I just called, I got Melbourne information. And I said, can you connect me to a newspaper? And she said, well, which one? And I said, I have no idea because I don't know any newspapers you have. And she said, well, how about the age? And I said, 
okay. I don't know. So I, I got there. I asked for the sports department and somebody answered and I just said, look, I'm in America. We're watching this game. We don't understand it. Is there anything that any place you can connect us with that we could get some books, we could do whatever. So we could learn something about this. Uh, his name was Rowan Connolly and he was a sports writer there for like 30 some years. So he turned out to be really nice. And we talked for a while and he got with the AFL. They had just converted from being the VFL. And so he got with them and they sent me books. He got me a like subscription to the sports section of the age. It would get airmailed to me all the time. They sent me a football. <laughs> so anyway, I, I get there. And so I'm, I learned something about the sport. Fast forward a bunch of years and I get this call. Oh, I'm sorry. So there was a fantasy football contest in the age. This was back when you had to mail in your stuff because again, it's pre-internet. So I went ahead and filled out a, a team and mailed it in. And so this guy calls me about a month later with an Australian accent. To me, it's Australian. Um, to you, it's normal. And he says, Hey, I'm, I work for a radio station. We see that you entered the age fantasy football thing. They wrote about you in the paper. You know, can you come on the air and talk about it? I had no idea any of that had happened. Uh, the interesting thing is that the guy that called me, his name was Wayne Campbell. He used to play for Richmond, played almost 300 games. He went to GWS for a while, I think, in an executive role. But he was interning there because he was like 21 years old and when he was there at Richmond. So we talk, I do go on the air. They invite me over and say, hey, if you get yourself here, we'll get you into some games. You know, we'll show you around a little bit as long as you come on the air. So I did. So I go, it was radio station 3UZ, I think. And so I go, go to some games, meet a bunch of people, had the best week and a half you can imagine, come back home. They asked me if I want to do like Monday morning American football recaps on the show. Keep in mind, I'm not a broadcaster. And if you listen to my voice, you know, I'm not a broadcaster. I have none of the dulcet tones of anyone. And so I said, sure, did that. So anyway, long story short, I've always been interested in Australian football. And the reason that I told that really long story is because I just took a chance and called. Somebody answered and decided to be nice to me which is cool. I was friendly back. Somebody else kind of called. We worked this to this really neat place where I met some really neat people and made some friends that I still have, all because I reached out and someone decided to be kind in return. And so the point of that story at the very end of it is if you find yourself in a position where you have a chance to do something nice for somebody, you don't know the impact that you might have. It might be a really simple thing to you, but that might set off some chain of events you can't predict that takes that person to a really cool place in their life or enriches their life in some way. So it's it's kind of the power of kindness in reverse. I experienced it, but it's a really nice lesson of, you know, when people need a little something from you, you don't have to give a full favor. And I'll stop after this, but there's research that shows that if, let's say I call you and I say, Jay, you've talked to some really awesome people. Can you connect me with, you know, I don't know, Georges St. Pierre? Can you do that? You probably don't want to do that, but there might be someone you can connect me with. And research shows that even the partial favor, where you're not doing the whole favor, but you're doing a little bit, most people, that's 100% of what they were looking for. They're happy, they're delighted, they can make use of it. It's a great thing. So, 
it's also a nice reminder that even if somebody needs help and you can't do everything that they might need, if you can do a little bit, it goes a really long way. And they're not upset with you because it means you cared enough to try to help them. I'm smiling at that because I love that lesson. And that's a good and a perfect reminder for me today because I'm constantly, I mean, I'm constantly speaking to many different people and I do have people that ask me, so how did you get this person right? And I'm, I'm always on the fence. Like I want to be kind, but then again, I also want to give them the opportunity to find a way to reach that person themselves. So am I the bridge? Do I want to be kind? And I always think there is still like something I can do to give them a little bit of a boost or a, a helping hand. But I found that story... Whoa. Great. <laughs> well, it's it's true. It's, and I understand exactly where you're coming from because I, I get I talk to lots of really cool people too. And so people say, Can you connect me? Part of it is that I I don't if I do that, I always ask the other person first, mm. you know, because it's I'm not just gonna blindly give away Mark Cuban's email address. Yeah, I'm I'm not doing that. Richard Branson, I could email him if I wanted to, but I'm not gonna email him with somebody that wants to meet him. So I always ask, and I rarely do that. But what I typically do is say, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't really have that relationship with that person and I can't do that. But I can tell you how I worked my way up to where I can get in the room with people like that, or I can start a correspondence or I can whatever. And I'll give you some tips that help you build your way to that if you want. And what's interesting is about half of them don't want that, which to me says, okay, then I'm glad I didn't give you that person's contact information because if you're not willing to kind of work to get there, then I hate this sounds terrible, but you don't deserve it. You know, you need to earn that. And so, but then the ones that are like, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. That's really what I'm looking for is how do I work my way into these situations or how do I network better or whatever it may be. So I I know exactly what you're saying and it's an awkward spot because you want to be helpful but there are limits to what you can do since there is someone else involved in this transaction. I dread that question because <laughs> it's always a tricky situation. But when someone says to me, hey, Jay, I'll connect you with this person. Like, I don't think I've ever asked one right. of my friends if they can connect me with someone. If they offer, then I'll take up that opportunity. But if they ask me whether or not I can connect them and if they're high profile, then like what you said, I'll always be respectful of that person that I am meaning to connect them with. Ask them first, unless it is a business, like a person, like a publicist or something like that, then I'll just connect them because it's technically I'm giving them business. So it's not really, but if it's a a high profile person, then yeah, obviously being respectful of them. <laughs> What's interesting so. is I learned that. Are you familiar with Adam Grant? Yes, uh, I am. Okay. Give and take, think again, stuff like that. So Adam, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we're, we we're acquaintances and Adam is the king of connecting two people who he feels should know each other, Yeah, which is a whole different thing than me saying to Adam, Hey, can you get me with so-and-so he'll send a note and say, Hey, Jeff, you really should talk to Jay because I think you guys have things you could do together that are mutually beneficial or could whatever it may be. He's the king of that. And so that's something that I do try to do is if, if, if we talk and I think, okay, I've got somebody that's perfect for him, then 
I'll do that kind of thing. But I not necessarily would say to you, you know, again, like, give me George, George St. Pierre's email address. I'm not going to do that because, uh, you know, yeah. but you may do that if you know that, say, George is looking for a ghostwriter. And so anyway, long story wants, short, it's an awkward spot. Yeah. And if he wants uh, a feature in Ink <laughs> Magazine as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that yeah. too. But yeah. um, how did you get yeah, started? So that, on, sorry, Jeff. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to ask you how you got started on this journey of becoming Ink Magazine's most popular columnist. I know it's like a long, probably long story. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. I'll try to go short. So I worked my way through college. My parents were, say, lower middle class. We didn't want for anything. We weren't poor, but they couldn't afford to send me to college. So I worked my way through college and I worked at a manufacturing plant. So I had a 40 hour a week job and I went to school um, and, and it was fine. I'm not complaining. It was actually one of the best things that I ever did because it taught me how to work, taught me a lot of stuff about real life. But I also went to college while I did it and I earned my way through, which I really liked too. Um, but I got done with that and I started interviewing for jobs and every one of them was with like 45 year old men in cubicles, you know, and I'm 22. So I would love now to be a 45 year old man, but at the time I thought, you know, not doing it. So the plant manager where I worked said, Hey, there's a factory that's just opened up in town. It's a fortune 500 company. They're actually the world's largest commercial printers. If you like manufacturing, you should go over there. Because even starting at the bottom, there's going to be tons of opportunity. And I thought, that sounds really cool. So I started out, my job title was material handler, which is exactly what it sounds like. You just carried heavy stuff around all day. Um, it was the entry-level shop floor job. I was the stereotypical college boy, which meant I had to kind of earn my respect from people who thought that I didn't know how to work hard and would quit after three days and all that other stuff, which is fine. Um, and so my goal after a little while was I thought I wanted to be a plant manager someday. I wanted to run a plant. And this was the perfect company to do that with because they had 50 some facilities spread across the country and across the world. So it was perfect. So I worked hard, spent 17 years working my way up, lots and lots of rungs of ladders. One day found myself running a plant. Awesome, right? Three years later, I thought, I do not want to do this anymore. <laughs> and here's the, here's the reason why. I liked the job. I liked manufacturing. I liked process improvement, all of that kind of stuff. I really liked that. The day I realized I shouldn't do it anymore, somebody came in my office and within like a sentence and a half, I knew exactly what we were going to talk about for the next 20 minutes how much I was going to have to listen, how much we were going to go back and forth, all of that stuff. And at the end, but what I really wanted to say is that you and Jay just need to get along and do your daggone jobs. But I couldn't. And I thought, all right, if that's where I am right now, I'm probably not the right person for this job anymore because I need to want that conversation. <laughs> I don't want to dread the conversation. I don't want to shortcut. I shouldn't shortcut the conversation. I should want that. And so I was... I would say that I was discussing that situation with my wife. She would say I was whining about it. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And, I said, and I, for some reason, it popped out and I said, I think I'd like to write. No writing background, no journalism background, no nothing. Um, and she said, OK, well, how would you do that? I don't know. So six months passes. I'm still whining about my job. I'm sorry, discussing the 
the ups and downs of my job. And she says, you know, you need to do something because you're driving yourself crazy and you're starting to drive me crazy. And so one day she came home and she said, I got you your first writing job. So there was a site now it's called Upwork, but it was Elance at the time. And it's one of those sites where like people that want projects, if you want a project done, you post it. Freelancers, it's a marketplace. So she got me a job doing a press release and it's the lowest paid per hour job I've ever done because I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know how to, I, it took me forever to write this press release. Turn it in. It's like a $50 job and I can't tell you how long I spent. So I turned it in. The guy loves it. Asked me to do something else. Asked me to do something else. So then that's kind of cool, but I still have my job, obviously. I'm just doing it at night and weekends and stuff. And then she comes home one day and she says, I got you three more jobs. And I said, how are you doing this? <laughs> and she had created a profile for me and she was bidding on jobs <laughs> and, huh. and getting them for me. And so started doing some more. And then I finally took over the bidding on my own because I thought, okay, if we're doing this, I need to pick my jobs. And I got to the point where I said, okay, I'm not yet able to make the money I was making because I had a really good job, but I see a path. And so I said to her, I think I'd like to give this a go and I will work really, really hard at it. And I'll work really long at it. And she said, what the heck, give it a year. If it doesn't work out, you could go somewhere. You'll, you'll find a job. It's not a problem. So I thought that's cool. So I did. And so I worked really, really hard and really long and built my way up. And then I was doing well with ghostwriting, but the problem with ghostwriting is it's like Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club is you can't talk about Fight Club. First rule of ghostwriting is you can't talk about anything that you do with anyone, which makes it really hard to market yourself. Yeah. You know, because and if like if you said to me, "Hey, I think I would like to hire you. Tell me some stuff you've done." Well, I really can't, but I promise I'll do a good job for you. <laughs> that that doesn't take you, but so far. So she said, "You know, you need some stuff in your own name," and I thought. Nobody wants to read anything by me. And I had written some best selling books as a ghostwriter, but they were someone else's, if you know what I mean. And so I thought nobody wants to read mine. But I pitched 10 different sites and ended up through a couple iterations. I ended up at Inc. I was just doing it at first because the idea was if I wrote something and you liked it, and you happen to look at my bio and you were in the market for a ghostwriter and you saw that I was a ghostwriter, you would say, oh, maybe I should talk to that dude. And that did work. But it also turned out because I'm paid by the page view, if you can build an audience, it also turned out to be surprisingly lucrative. So in effect, I am paid for the product that I create, but also they're paying me to advertise the fact that I'm a ghostwriter and that I'm a speaker and stuff like that. And so the reason that I was able to do a book is because agents would pitch me, but it was basically because I have a big audience. So I have a platform. And so that was the reason I did a book, but I had to be talked into it because I said, nobody wants to read a book by me. Luckily I turned out to be wrong. Um, you know, so if there's a, if you want to talk about imposter syndrome, I am your poster child. Um, but so that's the long winded story of really what it came down to is that I decided I wanted to do something different. It was hard to decide to do that because I put a lot of time and effort into that. And I had a really good job by anyone's estimation. I was successful, but I didn't like it anymore. And luckily my wife was both supportive and kind of nudgy in a good way. And 
and kind of stood back and said, you know, if you really want to try this, I guess she trusted that I would work hard and try, you know, and that's all you can really do. Because if I gave it a good year and I did my best and it wasn't working out, well, then clearly that's not for me. And I am convinced that we we will do things that we think we're good at. <laughs> so if you can get yourself to a place where you've put enough time and effort into it to feel like you're good at it, then you start to like it. And then that gives you the motivation to get better. And that's, that's a whole nother subject. Um, but so I'm the classic career switcher. Um, and I'm really glad. I am too. <laughs> and talking about imposter syndrome, I think I went through that. And if I'm being honest, I still have my days where I'm just like, oh, okay. Am I really being true to myself or am I just lying here to make myself feel better and to make others make me look good? Oh, it seemed like I look good. <laughs> uh, well, the tricky, the tricky part is that if you put a lot of time and effort into what you do, which you clearly have, there's a point where it feels like it's easy or not easy, but easier. And so then once you internalize that and that becomes your new normal, you start to think, oh, well, why are people saying good things about me? Because this isn't that hard, you know, but it was it was hard for a really long time. And to someone who is new at it, it is still really hard. You've just gotten to this place where you're like, all right, I, I don't feel like this is that big of a deal because I've worked my way to being here. And probably because every once in a while you look in the mirror and say, you know, dude, you got a long way to go. So you're always looking ahead to what you want to be. And it's it's always good to remember that it's sometimes you need to look back and see how far you've come, not so that your ego gets too big, but just so you can say, you know, I deserve to be where I am. And I have the confidence to go farther because I know if I can go from here to here, then I can go from where I am now to there with the same effort and hard work that got me there. I don't know about you, but it's kind of humbling in many ways to, to look back and see where you did come from to where you've come to now. And it's kind of like, I don't feel a sense of, up my britches sort of pride. I feel a sense of pride about where I came from to where I've been able to get to because it was a lot of hard work and I didn't give up along right. that journey. I may have felt like an imposter at some points and I'm still working through that because it's kind of like I I feel, okay, I've got this, this great list of incredible people that have given me an opportunity to be on the show and then they're like, shouldn't your social media be bigger than that because you've had these people? And then I look at them and I'm like, well, they probably didn't promote the episode. It's not that they didn't have a good time. It's just like they've been on so many other podcasts. They can't promote every single podcast they've been on. Right. So right. I've got to just remind myself of those grounding elements, <laughs> which kind of just alleviates the imposter syndrome entirely when you put it into a right form of perspective that is humbling in many ways. And then also it's just like, it's real. It's life. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You can't change it. Yeah. And the other part of it is what helps me is if you're focused on the process part of it, then you get to feel good at the end. Whereas if all you care about is the outcome, you probably don't do as well during the process side and mm -hmm. you get disappointed when that happens. So I don't know. A good example is, uh, if you're familiar with Guns N' Roses? Yes, band. I am. Yep. Okay, so Duff, Duff McKagan, I talked to him one time. Great guy. Loved the conversation. Wrote several articles about it. 
they did okay. They weren't, you know, millions of people did not read them. But I really liked talking to him and I got done with it feeling good because I had asked him a couple questions. They weren't gotcha questions at all, but they were questions where he said, you know, nobody's ever asked me that. And I hadn't thought about that. Let me think about mm -hmm. that. And then he tried, he worked, you could tell he wanted to give a thoughtful answer. And so then he started asking me stuff and it became a conversation. And so I got done with it thinking, okay, I did a really good job with that. I was proud of the, the job I did as an interviewer, turning it from question and answer, almost interrogation to let's have a conversation. And he seemed to enjoy it too. And so I felt good about that, regardless of how the later product came out. So if you interview someone and, you know, you feel like that went really well and it was a good conversation and they enjoyed it too and all of that stuff, that's a win regardless of whether 5 million people view it or they promote it on social or whatever else. And if you do enough of those things, all that other stuff comes because you can't control, you know, sometimes the, the, the social side of it or just the, either the views or the clicks or whatever it may be, there's a crapshoot element to that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've, I've written things that I'll read later, like two years later and go, Oh God, that sucked. But you know, 2 million people read it. Mm. <laughs> like, how does that happen? Then I'll write something that I'm incredibly proud of and a thousand people read it. And it's like, how does that happen? But there is an element of chance to it. So all you really do control is what you control. And that's doing the work and doing it as well as you can and trying to learn from it if you didn't do so well. And if you keep doing that enough times, the outcome takes care of itself. But if you try to look at one single data point to decide whether you were successful or not, you're going to feel bad. It's interesting. Or you're going to feel unjust or you're going to feel unjustifiably good about yourself and yep. you're not going to learn from what you should have learned from. I had that experience the other day. It was interesting. You should bring it up because I was doing an interview and I didn't feel like I was gelling or connecting with this guest. Anyway, I released the interview anyway, thinking that it's absolutely terrible. And uh, that ends up becoming the third most downloaded <laughs> episode. <laughs> and I get all this positive feedback from people. And I'm like, how in the world is that right? Like, and then the one that I really, really wanted that I thought I was gelling with the guest, we we're having an incredible conversation. And that went further down the list of, of downloads. And I'm like, what's going on here? Is, is the internet conspiring against me or? <laughs> so, yeah, I know, I know that feeling, but then I think you're right. It's just like, if you take that measure of success, then you're just going to feel bad all the time. Like it's just not going to make you satisfied or fulfilled in any, any way, shape or form. So I think it's quantifying little, little things that yep. make a bigger difference in the end. I have a friend that, he, he said on his bucket list was he wanted to run a marathon. So it was, I don't know why it was on there because he, he really didn't want to, but he wanted to say he had done so. You know what I mean? And so he would go and he would try to train a little bit and then he would quit and then he would whatever. And he said, I don't know what's wrong because it's, you know, it's high on my bucket list. And I said, you know, you want to say you want to put the sticker on your car with the 26.1 that shows everybody you ran the marathon. What you really have to want is to go out and run every day. 
that's the part you have to want. And if you want that, the marathon takes care of itself. And so, you know, there are a lot of people that will say to me, you know, hey, you've got a good audience and you've got a lot of followers on LinkedIn and stuff like that. I want that too. You know, I'm just like, you know, how do I game that? And I was like, I don't know how to game that. All I know is that you try to do really good work and you try to be engaging and helpful and informative and hopefully mildly entertaining once in a while and, you know, make a difference in people's lives. And if you're lucky, that kind of comes, but you have to want to do that stuff. You have to want to do the work. And if you want to do the work, then maybe the outcome will take care of itself. And if you don't want to do the work, the outcome is never going to take care of itself. So take it off your list and don't agonize over the fact you haven't accomplished it. I think that's actually a good thing. I People will say, oh, man, but that's like quitting. It's like, it's not quitting. You never wanted it in the first place. So all you've done is create a stress in your life over something that you're never going to do because you don't really want to do it. And that's okay because we can't do everything. So put that energy in something where you are willing to do the work. And then you're much more likely to get the outcome that you want. And you'll enjoy it a whole lot more along the way. What's on your bucket list? You know, I don't, I knew you were going to ask me that. I saw the gleam <laughs> in your eye as I got halfway through that. Knew it was coming. <laughs> um, wow. I don't have a whole lot of things left. I'm, this will sound strange because I, I do all sorts of stupid things um, just because I think they're, they would be fun. Uh, but I don't see them as bucket listy things. Something will like pop up and I'll go, ooh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if I could do that. And so things I've done, whether it's cycling or fitness or other things like that, some of the dumb stuff that I've done, it really was more of a whim that became a mission as opposed to, I sat back and said, okay, what, what things should go on my list that will fulfill me and that I will feel like my life is complete at the other end of it. And I actually think that at least for me is the better way to do it. Because if I try to create a bucket list, it's going to be artificial because I'm probably going to be affected by the things that other people have on theirs or that we think we are supposed to do. And it's not going to be something that has any meaning to me whatsoever. Like one year I did a hundred thousand pushups. <laughs> Dumbest goal that anyone has ever had because it had no utility, no meaning, no nothing. But I just decided part of it was because I knew it would help me promote my book. But also I just decided that would be interesting to see if the power of numbers, how the power of numbers works. Cause it's, it's the idea of some things is just a matter of repetitions and if you can collect enough of them consistently, you will have some success. And we could argue that your podcast is one of those. If you can collect enough great guests, if you just keep clicking them off and doing well, not only will you be able to attract better and better guests, myself notwithstanding, because I'm at the bottom of the list, but you know, you have to fill out some time. And but also it will get you to the place that you want to go. And so that was kind of the premise, but it turned out to be oddly fun to do. And it was fun to fill out my spreadsheet. It was fun to watch it all accumulate. When it was over, I was glad it was over and I didn't want to do it anymore. But it was a really cool thing. And it wasn't a bucket list item. And the beauty of it was when I was done for a while, if I had something else hard that I decided to do, it was really easy to go. If I thought, man, I don't know if I can do that. I would immediately switch over to, well, you did 100,000 push-ups last year, so if you can do that, then God, you can probably pull this off. Because most things in life, 
our time and effort. Yep. It's strictly a matter of if you're willing to put in the time and you're willing to put in the effort and you're willing to stick with it and you're willing to be the last one to give up on yourself, then there's a lot of stuff that you can do. I'll, I'll stop with this on that little story. I was when I was about 12, my grandfather worked on a farm, a lot of horse stalls. I was helping him muck out stalls. It's a horrible job, especially when they've been left for a month or two because things are ripe. And so I kept trying to come up with ideas for how this could be more easily done. Like if we hooked up a tractor to something and we did this, and I, I kept going through all this stuff. And my grandfather finally looked at me and said, I appreciate the fact you're trying to be smart, but sometimes you just got to dig the effing hole. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that because you could try to find all these clever workarounds and hacks and all these other things that are going to shortcut, get you the shortcut to whatever you want. Sometimes you just got to dig the hole. And if mm. you dig the hole, you're good. Mm. Yeah. I've got a lot of lessons like that from my grandfather before he passed. He, he instilled a lot of, that kind of wisdom into me. And I've sort of, as I've gone through life, I've learned as well that he was 1000% right <laughs> about everything. And even though at the time he irritated you, I'm sure. A hundred percent. But you know, I'm just like, come on, Grandy. <laughs> I wish you were still alive today. So I could just say to him, you were right. Yep. I yep. was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should have paid more attention to you growing up. Uh, but it's interesting that you should mention that you did a hundred thousand push-ups because I did uh back in 2000 and I think it was 2018, 18, 17 and 18. So I used to do a thousand push-ups every single day and Ooh. I completed it uh for six months. So I can't do math, so I don't know how much that equates to. That's a lot. It was nuts. Yeah. And so did you do them all in did you do it in one block of time or would you space it out through the day? How'd you do it? One block of time. So I'd do a okay. hundred push-ups uh, in a, in a set and then rest for a little second and then just keep going. And I, I had this like incredible resilience in, in my, my muscles, my chest, oh, all that sure. sort of stuff. Um, but it was just, it was just like, it took me forever. <laughs> um, I can't remember. I think it took me a 30, 30 minutes to an hour to accomplish the thousand, but it was interesting because I ended up in hospital for a completely different other issue. And I was still doing the thousand push-ups in the bathroom with a cannula in my arm. Uh, so yeah, it got to the point where I was just like, okay, I've got to stop the thousand push-ups a day thing. <laughs> it's funny how habits work though, because, and I'm convinced that if you can give something enough time, like, I, and I usually think of like two weeks, if you decide you want to do something, you should commit to yourself that no matter what, I'm going to do this for two weeks for two reasons. One, if you can't get through the two weeks, then you really don't want to do whatever it is anyway. So cross it off your list. But if you can get through the two weeks, it's long enough that you've, especially if it's physical, that you've gotten through some of the sore periods, you've gotten through some of the inevitable dip that you get, and you've come out and you can see that you've improved. You see that you're getting stronger, faster, more stamina, whatever it is you're doing. And you think, okay, this is working. And that kind of drives you forward. And then there's a point not long after that, where instead of, oh, I have to do my push-ups, doing push-ups is part of your identity and it's who you are. You're the guy that does push-ups. And so when you reach that point, 
no longer do you have to force yourself because just what you do. So you weren't having to say, oh gosh, I'm in the hospital, but I, I still have to do these push-ups. You were like, all right, I don't want anybody to see me. So I think I'll do them in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> but you were, you were, you were finding a way to do it rather than forcing yourself to do it because it became part of your identity. And I don't think people give thing, things enough time to become part of their identity. You know, if you're training for a marathon at first, you're the person that goes out and runs. After a while, you're a runner. If you become a new supervisor, at first, you're the guy with the clipboard and the checklist and you're trying to do all that stuff. And one day you wake up and you're a leader, you know, and you see yourself as a leader. And so that changes how you operate because it's part of your identity. And so the whole idea of giving something time is really important, I think, because if you can get it to be who you are, then it's nearly effortless, not effortless, but nearly effortless, which is as good as you're ever going to get. And you never regret doing the things like exercises. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Like you, you contemplate, you procrastinate all (laughs) before you actually do it. Yeah. And then when you finish it, it's like, Hey, that wasn't so bad. Yep. And you're happy you did it. Yeah. I have never known anyone who was complaining about going to the gym that then went to the gym and walked out and said, I don't know why I did that. That was a waste of time. You never will. You hear that. You'll hear it ahead of time, but never afterwards. But that's true in in lots of stuff. Like, I don't know, if you're if there's somebody you're trying to get on your show and you're thinking, wow, do I send this email? Do I not? I don't know. This is weird. Should I? It's a reach. It's a whatever. Once you've sent it, it's okay because you think, okay, let's see what happens. Or uncomfortable conversations, if you're a leader, they're never as bad as you think they'll be. And you're always glad when it's over because now you can put it away. Um, I saw this study. It was about secrets. And it said that people, the average person carries around like 13 secrets. I don't know, whatever they may be. I don't know how many I have. Uh, But I sort of extended it to that whole idea. And it, it talked about the stress that it put on you because your mind constantly flips over to the secrets you're carrying and it takes you away from other things that you're doing. So it's a mind share problem. But that's also true when there's something you dread and you put on, put it off because it's taking up space and it's taking up energy and it's taking up whatever. And then when you're done, you always feel better and you kind of wipe all that dread away. So I, I don't, I'm not perfect at it, but I really, if I have something that I feel is going to be uncomfortable, I try to dive on it as soon as I can, because I don't want to sit around and dwell on it because it sucks to dwell. Yeah. It's kind of like that sense of relief. Right. And I think if you're carrying around those, those secrets, it's kind of like you want someone to know, but then again, you kind of don't, but then when they do know, then you get that relief inside you. It's kind of, it's like a burden shared is a burden halved. Yep. I think that that saying, and I, it, it's and then, so and true. one way or the other, at least it's over. You know what the result is. Yep. You know, it may be bad, it may be good, but you know what it is. But wondering what it will be is always worse. Yeah, yeah. I do that with. This is funny, but I, I do that with like speaking. So I was in Dubai, I guess probably a month and a half ago. Arabian Business Awards, big event, formal, lots of uh, fanciest thing I've done. So. Before I leave, I always have this cycle where if I get booked two months ahead, excited first month ahead, one month to go, I start to think, ooh, should I have said yes? 
two weeks to go, I'm uh, two weeks to go. I'm starting to think, okay, should I tell him I'm sick? <laughs> you know, because I start to get scared. A week to go, I'm looking around for anything. I'm hoping a car will hit me, not fatally, but just will take me out of action so I don't have to go. Then I'll go, I'll be there, I'll talk to my wife. Like this happened there the night before. I called her and said, I don't know what I, I why did I say yes to this? <laughs> I'm gonna suck. You know, I all that stuff. When it's over. It's awesome. Had a great time. Went really well. Met, met some cool people. It's a great thing. She says to me, would you do it again? Oh, yeah, I would do it again. It's just funny how we attach all this other stuff to things. And if we just do them, they always turn out better than you think. And if nothing else, you feel good just because you powered through and you didn't let your fear defeat you. And it's interesting because like what you were saying, you probably had a lot of talks that you've been to and you, you probably still get that. I don't want to do time. this every time. That is amazing. Why every time that? I don't get uh, That's part of the imposter syndrome thing, yeah. but then it's, you know, it's funny how, who was I told? There's a band here, Avenged Sevenfold. It's a heavy metal band. And one of the, the guitarists' name is Sinister Gates. It's not his real name. His name's Brian, but he goes by <laughs> Sinister Gates. Really good guy. And we were talking about how he says, and they're, look them up. They're an extremely popular, they've sold millions of albums and they're, they're a popular band. So I was talking about confidence and being on stage. And he said, you know, he said, no matter how many shows we've done, no matter how well the tour is going. Every time I'm on stage, I always find one guy in the front row that I'm convinced is looking at me and saying, I'd heard this guy was really good and he sucks. And he says, and I'll find him and I'll fixate on him and it will bother me the entire show, even though I, even though there's no truth to it whatsoever, but that's his thing. And then he talked about their singer who he says has the biggest ego in the world, but he gets sick before shows because he gets nervous. And so his, anyway, the, the end result of that conversation was he said, you know, when you boil it all down, everybody is some sort of effed up. <laughs> and I thought that's true. Um, you know, scratch anybody and there's something goofy going on in some aspect of their life. And so for me, I have a big ego about some things, but at the core I'm pretty insecure about stuff in the moment. If you think globally, feel pretty good about what I do. But in that moment of, okay, I've got to walk out and I don't know these people and I've never spoken here. And, you know, I've got sheiks in the audience and I've got, you know, the, the head of Dubai Amazon's here. And, you know, you add it all up and I can find reasons why I should be scared. Whether they're true or not, I can find them. And so I, I'm aware that that's what I do. It's okay. I know to work through the cycle. I remind myself at the end that it's okay. Um, and probably the, the fun part about it was, I'll talk about Duff McKagan again really quick. I was asking him about confidence and being on stage. And he said, you have to remember, and this applies kind of globally to lots of stuff. You have to remember that they're not out there hoping you'll fail. They're not out there looking for the things you do wrong. They're not out there looking at anything negative. They want you to kill. They want you to be awesome. They're rooting for you because they want to have a great time and go home and say, that was the best show in the world. And so he said to me, because I was, I was doing a TED talk that year, he said, you know, 
they want you to be great. They're rooting for you. So when you walk out, realize they're all on your side. And I thought that's a really good way to look at it. And it extends to lots of things. Like if you're going on a job interview, people get nervous. They think the interviewer is going to hate them. They're going to hate their answers. They're going to whatever. The interview or interviewer wants you to be great because if you are, you just solved a problem. You are the person that they want to hire. They want you to be awesome. So go do that. If you're a salesperson and it's a lead that actually makes sense, they want your product to solve their need. They want your service to take care of some issue that they have. So it's it's an interesting way to flip it around. I can't say that I'm always good at it because I still get scared or I still get nervous or I still whatever. Um, but I realize that it's part of the process. And I think that's ultimately all we can do is if you have things like that, instead of thinking, okay, I've got to overcome this and make it disappear. I don't know sometimes that you always can, but you can recognize that that's your pattern and you can say, okay, I've been here before. I know I'm going to call my wife and say, I wish I hadn't have done this. I know I'm going to wish a car would hit me so I don't have to go. I know I'm going to do all that. And I know that if I prepare well and that if I do everything I can to be in a position to do as good a job as I can, that it will go at least pretty well and I'll be happy I went. And so that now that's that's kind of what I have to remind myself. And so there's there's things like that in everybody's life where you wish you could overcome it. But instead of spending the energy on totally overcoming it, spend the energy on reminding yourself that this is how that works for you and the things that help you get through that so that you can get to the other side. I find it fascinating how we as human beings, we place titles on people for the things that they have done. And if we put them all in a big room, we get scared and we get nervous because we kind of compare ourselves to what they've done compared to what we've done. And we think, oh, going back to that imposter syndrome, I shouldn't be on the stage sharing whatever I'm sharing with this group of people that have probably got more wisdom, more advice, more experience out in the world. Like who am I to be up on, on stage there? But it's interesting because we're all human beings at the end of the day, doesn't matter what we have done. We are still, our, our stories are still valuable as I've discovered. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I forget who it was, but this helps bring out, uh, I guess, a sense of more confidence. It's a weird way of doing things. But you know that old saying of, you know, when you're up on stage, just imagine everyone, picture them naked, that that sort right. of thing. I think they, they go, I don't imagine people naked. I imagine people taking a shit because that is, <laughs> I know. Wow. I'm like, okay, because they're like, that is the most vulnerable position anyone can really be in. And guess what? And everyone, everyone does, does it. it. So, yeah. you know, just relax a little bit uh, and go for it, I guess. So that leads me to an interesting or hopefully an interesting point. People will say, you know, you talk to lots of famous, successful people, you know, what, what's the big thing you learned or what's, what's, you know, what's the wisdom you've gained and all that stuff. And, and I have some of those things, but what I always walk away thinking is that whoever the person is really, they're just like everyone else. 
They've just worked really, really hard to be really, really good at some specific thing. But it doesn't make them great at everything. And it doesn't automatically confer intelligence or judgment or all of those other things. It just means that they're really, really good at that. And so that's not a negative. I think that's a really empowering thought because what it says is if you want to do something extraordinary, the people that are doing it, except for some athletic pursuits where genetics and things like that have an impact, they're just like you. They just worked really, really hard. And so you can too. And so that's, I try to remind myself of that too, but that is a, an important part of it is that I don't care who you are. You can't be great at everything and it's okay. And, but you can be really good at some stuff if you choose and you want to work hard and go do that. What's the most fulfilling thing you've ever done? Ooh, most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Wow. It's a question I've not been asked. Okay. Wow. All right. I, I don't know if this, if you ask me this again, an hour from now, when I've had time to think I might come up with something else, but what popped in my head when I was back working in manufacturing and I was a supervisor. So I had like 40 people on my crew and there was one guy who wasn't super smart, but would work really hard. And he wanted to be a machine operator, which was one level up from where he was. And that was kind of the highest craft level job on the floor. And he would try to learn and he would try to get people to help him on the side and he would try to train and stuff. And, but he wasn't, he wasn't very quick. And so people would get tired of it and kind of brush him off. And so I, for whatever reason, I thought that if he was given the chance, he would probably be really good. It just might take longer. And so we were in a promotion meeting and people were talking about who should get promoted. And I advocated for him. And the other supervisor said, you're crazy. And I said, no, I really think there's something there, but I think we have to give him a chance. And they basically said, okay, well, we will, but he's on your crew. So you're stuck with the problem. So then we promote him and the guys on my crew all said, dude, what have you done to us? You know, why do we have to deal with this? And I said, just, just try, just hang in there, just whatever. And I'm not taking credit for this because he worked really hard. He would stay after his shift unpaid and he would, he would do stuff. And I mean, he recognized that he needed to work really hard to get to where other people could get by working fairly easily. But he became a really good machine operator. Then he went to school and became a machinist. Then he went to school and got an electrical engineering degree. Um, and I didn't do that. I'm not saying that I did that, but I always have felt good about the fact that I thought, you know, he wants this. So why shouldn't we give him a chance? Because he doesn't just want it like in a vague figurative sense. He wants it in a sense of he will work really, really hard if we give him a chance to go do that. And so I've, if, if I think back to if people sometimes will say, you know, what are some of your success stories from when you were developing people, which is a cheesy question because it, it automatically assumes that we somehow are responsible for people's success, which we're not. But he's one of those people that I think about because it's like, you know, there's a lot of people that if given the chance and given a little bit of patience and understanding, because you can give a chance, but if you don't give the patience and understanding, you haven't really given the chance, then 
they can do really, really cool things. So I, I guess that that's what popped into my head. I'll have to ask you when I do a part two with you, I'll ask you the same question. Give you okay. more time to think about it. Yeah. I'll think I'll try to come up with something really, really awesome, but I really like that one in a way. His name was Glenn. His name is Glenn, I like, I like um, it too. but, but Glenn, uh, yeah, that was, that was really cool. It kind of brings me back to the beginning of what you were talking about with kindness in a way. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah. So to f- sort of wrap up this conversation, my friend, because yeah, I, no, I, I went way too long on you. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It, it's all good. I mean, I could continue this conversation for, for hours, believe you me, <laughs> but I know I've got to be respectful of your time. So two quick final questions for you, if that's okay. Sure. But, what do you love the most about yourself and your story? Um, wow. I guess that if I was going to be, let's pretend that I have a big enough ego that I think I could be an example to other people in some fashion. So let's just <laughs> pretend that that's a possibility. Um, it would be that I'm decidedly average in all ways. There is nothing special about me in any way, shape or form, but I've gotten to do some really cool things. uh, And it's, it's just time and effort. And so if there are people that have dreams or goals or ideas or things that they want to accomplish or whatever else it might be, you don't have to wait for someone to select you. You don't have to have a certain level of education or a certain amount of financial backing or a certain amount of connections or all of those other things that people say, oh, if I only had that, then Mm -hmm. I would be able to. Starting from wherever you are is perfect because that's where you are. The key is to say, where do I want to be and map yourself out a path that you are in control of and that you are committed to following through that will get you there. And if you get lucky, some people will help you along the way, especially if you are helping them because giving is always the best way to network and to maybe receive. And even if you don't ever receive, you still feel good about yourself because you made a difference in somebody's life. So I like the fact that I'm not going to say love, but I like the fact that in spite of not having too many advantages on my side, I, I worked hard and found myself in a good place. And I really like what I do because it's got a really nice work-life balance, not in terms of time necessarily, but sometimes I get to write about things just because I'm interested in them. So I get to take personal interests and find a way to make them professional. And so then you get the best of both worlds. Um, so I, I like that part of at least what I have now too. Didn't have that at first, had to take whatever work I could get, you know, it, you've got to grind your way through and you got to pay your dues and you got to get your way to the other side. Um, but I really like that part. I would love to continue this conversation and talk more about the progression of things, the persistence of things, which I think you could talk a lot about, which is another topic of conversation. We'll leave for another time. But Jeff, before I ask you the final question, where do you want people to connect with you, learn more about your work? I believe this is a moment for you, my friend, to plug your book too, because I didn't think anything about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not not a a self-promoter at all. So um, I write for Inc. Magazine, it's Inc.com, and I'm on LinkedIn, and I do connect with people. I may not answer within the hour, but if people 
if people want to connect or ask questions or, or communicate in some way, then I will eventually get back to you. I promise. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure I'll promote you. It's all good. I'll yeah. link everything in the show notes below, but this is my all time favorite question. I love asking all my guests at the very end. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Happy wife, happy kids, happy grandkids. Um, and a few of the people that I worked with along the way were glad that I either worked with them or was their boss or something else. And maybe a few people that have read something or seen me speak or whatever else that if it made some little teeny small difference in their life that they, that they, you know, said that it did, then that'd pretty much be enough. The perfect send-off message, actually. But Jeff Hayden, thank you so much, my friend, for your time today, your stories. I enjoyed each and every one of them. Can't wait. Long-winded as they might have been, but it's all good. I love long-winded stories. It saves me having to talk. (laughs) Uh, But thank you so much for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.